We are a few weeks past the holidays. I've been to some of your homes. Some of you were very diligent. On the 26th, it was spring decorations, right? They were gone. I've been in other houses, and you are very much still decorated, like in a very impressive way. You have not uh, become aware that it's January. You could not be further away from Christmas, but your house is still very ready. Uh, But if you know anything about me, I love the holidays. I'm a Christmas music in July sort of guy. Uh, And it's both my favorite thing and my least favorite time. It's my least favorite because just super out of routine. I'm a big, you know, type A routine kind of guy. And so you're out of routine for like two months. But it's my favorite because it's just constant celebration, right? I love the music. I love the traditions. I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas especially. But I love most of all... Uh, the, the meals of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. I love the feasts. And what I love about the feast isn't the food, although that's, that's great as well, but I love the people. I love the set-aside time to where the people that are closest in your life can gather around a table and we get to spend time with one another, maybe reflecting on the year, maybe looking forward to the next year. It's one of my favorite things is not just the feast, but the people who come to The feast. And today, in this passage, as we continue to walk through Matthew, we're going to see Jesus call people to a feast. Going to see Jesus call people to a feast and see who it is that he decides to call to a feast. And we're going to see what does it mean to actually feast with him? What does it mean to sit at the table and share food with and share fellowship with Jesus? So we're going to see. Uh, As we look at Matthew 9 through 13, we're going to see not three, four things. So buckle up, right? Four things. We're deviating a bit. We're going to see who are the people that Jesus calls to the feast, the ones who Jesus calls to the feast, the transformation of the feast, the one who calls to the feast, the one doing the calling, and how we are called to the feast. So the people of the feast, the transformation of the feast, the one who calls to the feast, and how he calls us to the feast. So we'll look at the first one. This We'll spend the most time in this. Who are the people that Jesus calls to the feast? Look at Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So last week, we entered into chapter 9 of Matthew as we've continued to walk through. And we were seeing Jesus continue to go around and heal. 
We saw his great sermon on the mount where he was declaring the beauties of the kingdom. What is life in the kingdom like? And then he's, he's speaking with great authority and he comes down from the mountain. And since then, we've seen him going around and displaying his authority, primarily through healing the sick and casting out demons. And last week, chapter 9, Tim preached an excellent sermon where we, we begin to see opposition to his ministry. Jesus going around healing the sick forgiving sins, and now the religious leaders in particular are showing up and they've got some questions and they've got some accusations. We saw last week as Jesus heals the paralytic and forgives his sins, he's called a blasphemer. And today we'll see Jesus call people to his feast, Matthew, and then more after Matthew and the Pharisees are going to show up and they're going to have a reaction. So look back at verse 9. We'll walk through this passage Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Matthew is the author of this gospel, and he's talking about his own call as a disciple of Jesus. So this is his own story. And notice what he's doing. We've talked about this before. Matthew is slowing down the narrative. Jesus isn't just showing up and immediately doing all these things. There's times where the narrative is sped up, right? Because we're just seeing these different events. And Matthew here is slowing down, meaning to draw us in. So we see Jesus passing by, and he sees a man called Matthew, and he's sitting in a tax booth. And right there, it's meant to send shock into your heart because... Tax collectors, especially in Jesus' day, are not the same as tax collectors in our day or tax agents in our day. No one in the history of the world has liked paying their taxes, uh, but especially in Jesus' day, tax collectors are particularly hated because they are Jewish agents of Rome. They are quite literally aiding your oppressor's oppression of you with your money. They are taking away your money, giving it to Rome so that Rome can stay in charge. Rome can continue to oppress you, right? These guys are traitors. It'd be like if the Californians invaded and someone from Texas, right, took our money and gave it to the Californians so they could stay in control. That would never happen, right? We've got like a hundred to one gun ratio with them, but just for the sake of analogy, right? They're keeping your enemies in charge. They're traitors, And not only that, they were known for taking a little bit extra. They take enough to give to Rome, and then they take a little bit extra for themselves. So they're greedy traitors. And not only that, notice Matthew here, he is at the tax booth of that region. So he's not just, it's not just as if he's a part of a group that's disliked. This guy personally has harmed you. This guy personally has taken money from you and put it in his own wallet and put it in the wallets of your enemies and he's harmed your family and he's threatened your livelihood. They don't just dislike his group. Matthew himself is disliked as this greedy traitor. He was hated by the entire Jewish community, including the disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, John would not have liked Jesus calling Matthew to join them because he's probably taken money from their pockets. 
He was absolutely hated. He's a traitor, he's an oppressor, he's greedy, he's selfish, and he's a thief. And Jesus walks by, and probably all the disciples with him spitting on the ground as they see Matthew, and Jesus sees this hated traitor sitting at the booth, literally doing the very thing he's hated for, and he says, follow me. Come join my team. And I'm moved to reflect here, although this isn't a part of the sermon, this would be a whole other sermon in and of itself, I'm moved to reflect on the people Jesus chooses for his inner circle. Because this isn't just calling the unqualified fishermen, he is intentionally introducing potential for disunity at best, violence at worst. Simon the Zealot, someone who would have probably attempted to kill the Romans, would not have liked this man. And I think Jesus does it to show just how powerfully he divide, or breaks down every dividing wall of hostility. But that will be another sermon. He calls Matthew, he calls this hated man, and Matthew instantly gets up and follows him. Then the next thing we see in verse 10 is they go to Matthew's house for a feast. Matthew doesn't say here they go to his house, but Luke and Mark both tell us they actually go to Matthew's house for a big dinner party. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So they go to Matthew's house and behold, Matthew's drawing us in. He's saying, look, look what happens next. This is important. I want to draw your eyes here. Many tax collectors, as if one was bad enough, now a whole bunch are coming and sinners are coming to feast at Matthew's house with Jesus. We have tax collectors, the hated people, and then sinners, which is funny. There's just this group labeled sinners. These are people that would have been, uh, they would have had just a bad reputation. These are small towns where travels fast. They would have had the worst reputation. It would have been very obvious they don't follow the law. Right? They're the people the religious leaders say, stay away from them. They're a bad influence. Right? They're looked down on by the holy ones. Right? They're just considered the unclean outcasts with bad reputations. Those two groups come to this feast, and they're reclining at the table with Jesus. What does that mean? Lee just talked, uh, gave a theological equipping class last week on food, the biblical theme of food. It's was excellent. One of the things he brought out was eating with someone in Jesus' day. Eating with someone in our day, having someone over to your house is nice and kind and hospitable. In Jesus' day, it was that tenfold. It was a way of saying, these are my people. It was the way of desiring fellowship and acceptance and deep friendship with others. So this scene isn't a kind of feed the poor dinner party that Jesus is just doing, right? This isn't charity on Jesus's part, or it's just, it's not a lecture where Jesus is just having a mini Bible study with these sinners who need some Bible in their life. This is intimate fellowship. This is a feast between the Son of the living God and sinners. He's brought them to the table. He's enjoying their company, and they're enjoying his. And verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors 
and sinners. So the Pharisees are walking by. They see this feast happening. They see that Jesus is associating himself with these unclean, you know, bad reputation people, and not to mention the tax collectors, those traitors that everyone would have hated. And all of a sudden they ask his disciples, why is he eating with them? Why is he sitting at the table with those people? Doesn't he know he's a teacher? He's a rabbi like us? Doesn't he know people like us are supposed to remain holy? We don't associate with people like that. Doesn't he know who's sitting around the table with him? Notice, this is not a request for information. This is a charge. They are baffled. They're disgusted at who Jesus is choosing to sit with. And you can almost hear them saying, ugh. Wouldn't catch me with people like that. I wouldn't do that. What's this rabbi doing? Doesn't he know who those people are and what they've done? Holy people like me wouldn't do that. And Jesus hears them. Verse 12. When he, Jesus, heard it, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician But those who are sick, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus hears their kind of self-righteous, disgusted charge, and he responds by saying three things. What does he say first? The healthy don't need a doctor. You can hear a little bit of Sarcasm, Jesus matching their self-righteousness. The healthy don't need a doctor. The sick do. Why am I here? Why am I eating with the sick? Because they need me, the physician. You, oh great healthy Pharisees, don't need me. That's why I'm here. They're sick. I'm the physician. They need me here. But you healthy people don't. That's the first answer. Second answer, a little bit more sharp, increasing it a little bit. Go and learn, what's he saying? Go and learn what the scriptures say about God's heart. Go and learn, by the way, is a rabbinic formula. A rabbi, a teacher, these Pharisees would say that to their students. They're the ones with the answers, right? They're the holy ones. They're the sophisticated ones. And they would tell the lessers who are coming to them for wisdom, go and learn. And then they would give a lesson and they would point to a text. And Jesus here is saying, go open your books again, O teachers, and learn what the scriptures say about who God is and what he wants. Go open the scriptures and learn who God is. And he quotes Hosea 6.6, which says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Essentially what Jesus is saying to them is, Hey, teachers of the law, you don't know who God is. You don't know his heart. You don't know what he desires, I do. Go read in the scriptures, what does God say? I desire, I long to show mercy 
and steadfast love rather than cold religious observance of my law. I long for people to know me, knowledge of God to fill the streets rather than heartless sacrifice. Jesus is saying, you don't know God's heart, I do. He longs to show mercy to sinners, which is why I'm at this table. That's the second answer to his question. Quick side note before we move on. If you ever have the temptation to view God in the Old Testament as mean and Jesus in the New Testament as kind, right? You have that false dichotomy. God's real mad in the Old Testament. He's just pouring out wrath on everybody. And Jesus is sweet and eats with sinners in the New Testament. Let this destroy that ridiculous idea. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's saying, how do I know God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love? He doesn't pull the Son of God card and say, I just came from his uh, right hand, right? I'm, I'm from heaven, so I actually know exactly what he's like. He says, I read the Bible. I read Hosea. I read the scripture, and the scriptures declare the glorious, merciful heart of God. So that's the second thing he says. You don't know God's heart. He doesn't want your cold, heartless, religious observance. He wants mercy. He longs to show mercy, which is why I'm at this table. And then the third thing he says, he just says it as explicitly as possible. I came not to call the righteous, right? those who are righteous in their own eyes. He's describing how the Pharisees view themselves, not how God views them. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is as clear as we'll ever get it. Jesus saying, here is why I am here. I came. Where did he come from? Is he talking about Bethlehem? Or is he talking about Capernaum? Or is he talking about the other side of the sea? No, I came from the Father's right hand. I came down not to call those who think they have no need, those who think they're good on their own. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I came for those who know they are sick. I came for those who know they only have filthy rags to offer. I came for those who are poor in spirit, those who are desperate, desperate for a savior because they know they are sick. Go and learn what this means. God longs to show mercy and that's why he sent me here to save sinners. So it's as clear as we're ever going to get it. Who are the people that Jesus calls to the feast? Sinners. Those who know that they are sick. So here's the first question for us. Are you a sick sinner? Do you know that you are a sick, desperate sinner? Or are you pretty good? You can compare yourself to thousands of others who have way more wheels off life than you and are terrible parents and are terrible you know, children and are terrible employees. And you know a million people that you're better than. You're, yeah, maybe not perfect, but generally good. And yes, you might need grace, but it's grace that's like a little bit of a help because you've got it 80% of the way already. Or are you desperate? I've got nothing. I'm 0%. In fact, I put myself in the deficit every step that I take. Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you know that you're sick and need a doctor? Or do you generally think, I'm healthy, generally. Again, I might have a slip up every now and then. 
And again, I, I would imagine everyone in this room right now is thinking, oh yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Everyone believes that they're a sinner intellectually, every Christian. It's like the first thing we're taught. You're a sinner, you know the right answers that you have to say, but very few of us live like it. Do you live desperate? Do you live like you are in desperate need of grace and mercy every single day? If the physician doesn't show up, I can't live. Is that how you live? Or again, are you generally good and you'll pray if you need some assistance? He can get you the rest of the way. Here's the irony of the Pharisees in this story. Everybody in this story besides Jesus is sick. The Pharisees just don't know it. Everyone at the table and the Pharisees walking by, everyone has cancer, except the Pharisees don't know it. The sinners and the tax collectors do, and they found the cure. The cure is sitting with them at the table. If you don't see who you are, if you don't grasp this here, that you are a sinner in desperate need of a merciful Savior, notice what happens. You're blind to yourself. Therefore, you're blind to God. Therefore, you're blind to God's salvation. And therefore, worst of all, you miss the feast that's right in front of you. This is one of the reasons why something like moralism is so poisonous. It tells you quite literally the opposite of the gospel. Clean yourself up. Earn God's salvation, and then maybe he will accept you when Jesus here is saying it as explicitly as possible. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for Sick, desperate sinners. Jesus tells the parable in Luke 18. I read this often because it so beautifully illustrates the heart of the gospel. Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous Pharisees and treated others with contempt as a result. That's exactly what we're seeing in this story. The self-righteous treating others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, a hated, greedy traitor. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, look at my holiness. I give tithes on all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his, his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God who longs to show mercy and not sacrifice, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Both men in this story are sick. Only one leaves healed. Only one knows it and leaves healed. Healed. Jesus came to call sinners. Please see this. Your sin, your failures are not a hindrance to him calling you. They are a prerequisite to him calling you. 
Your sins are not a hindrance to him calling you to himself. They are a prerequisite to him calling you. Never sit in shame when you repent. That is quite literally what Jesus is here for. The sting of the conviction of the Spirit is not to put you down in shame, but rather an invitation to the feast. Turn from your sin and turn to the great physician who can heal you. Jesus says in Luke 15, Luke 15, see God's heart. There's more joy that fills heaven when one sinner repents than 99 righteous who don't. See a God who longs to show mercy. See yourself as a sinner and see him coming to save sinners. Your Christian identity, this is so important for us to see, your identity as a Christian is, I am a sinner and I'm saved by a gracious Savior. I'm a sinner, yes, but oh, I'm saved. I'm desperate for and I'm saved by a gracious Savior who has brought me to his table. Only then, only with that identity, I'm a sinner, but I know a gracious Savior, can you be continually humble You can never walk in pride like these Pharisees. You never look down your nose at anybody else because primarily you're baffled, not like the Pharisees that he would eat with sinners, you're baffled that he would eat with you. John Newton says this, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. If you could actually peer into the depths of your own heart and see the wickedness and see the sin that exists there, you would never leave this place of just baffled that he has called you, of all people, to his table. It's the only way to stay continually humble and it's the only way to be continually joyful. Christians are not like Eeyore, just always aware of their sin and just so depressed. You know, like the middle schooler really wanting attention. They're like, oh, I'm so bad, right? And you're just waiting for your friends to say, no, it's fine. You know, we enjoy this relationship, right? That's not what Christians are like. We know we're sinners. Yes, we're humbled by that reality, but we are joyful. Why? We found the physician. We know the one that brings healing for our sin. We're poor in spirit, but we know that we are infinitely rich in him. Paul gives what I think is the perfect summary of this, this kind of tension of continual humility and just worship at who God has made us in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. He's talking about himself, right? I think this could be the mantra for every Christian. Paul talking about himself to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, and I was a sinner. But I received mercy. This God who longs to show mercy has shown mercy to me because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the greatest example of any sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I was such a sinner, and he was also patient with me. And in my salvation, he displays his incredible grace and his incredible patience. And then look what happens to Paul's heart in verse 17 as he's recounting his salvation. I'm such a sinner, but he showed patient, merciful grace to me, and he just breaks out in joyful worship. To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see that tension. He knows who he is, the foremost of sinners, but he knows who his sweet Savior is, who is patient and merciful and gracious, and therefore the joy of being a sinner desperately united to a gracious Savior fills his heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor in the 20th century, I was talking about why can Christians, why can you and I live as sinners who confess sins to one another and it just be a normal reality in our lives, sinners saved by a gracious Savior? And he says this, quote, the religious, meaning the Pharisees, or the self-righteous, permit no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from his fellow Christians. Pretend you're not a sinner. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous, meaning self-righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is that we are sinners, but it is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the religious to understand It's so hard for them to understand why he's at the table with sinners, but it's the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the religious to understand, that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself And to your brothers, as if you were without sin, you can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. He loves the sinner, but hates the sin. You see the picture in that quote from this passage. Sinners who are very much aware. I'm a sinner. I know I'm a tax collector. I know I've done wicked things. I know I'm unclean. I know I have a horrible reputation that I've earned Save me, O great physician, and the joy that they have at the feast. And that's the second thing we need to see here. There's a way to misread this passage that we must avoid. There's a way to misread this where it seems like, I guess Jesus just doesn't care about sin anymore. I guess Jesus is like, look, I know Old Testament was pretty tough, 
right? You sinned, you got stoned to death and things like that, but I'm here and we're going to party, right? Is this just a display of Jesus as he's just so loving, right? He's not judgmental like we thought he was. He's just so, is this a way to say Jesus doesn't really care that much about holiness? He just wants to love, right? He just wants to be with us. That would be a total misrepresentation, misreading of this passage and misunderstand everything of what's going on here. So the next thing we need to see here in this passage is the transformation of the feast. What is Jesus actually doing at this table? Why has Jesus come? Jesus has come low to save, meaning call sinners out of their sin. He's come to these sick people to heal them from their sin. This passage is not saying there's no need for life change for Matthew or the sinners or the other tax collectors. Rather, this passage is displaying the ultimate life change. People who get their sin healed. People who leave the tax booth. Notice that. Matthew, sitting, working at a tax booth, doing the sinful thing, Jesus comes and says, follow me, which is a way of saying, keep following me. It's an ongoing command. And what does Matthew do? He leaves. He repents in a way, turns from the old life and turns to Jesus and then hosts a feast at his house, right? That is transformation. He does not go back to his tax booth. And the sinners that are coming here aren't just coming because they want food. They're coming to the feast because they want him. And we see all throughout the gospel narratives, large groups of sinners who keep following him. We see a transformation that happens in this feast. Sinners are not staying in their sin. They're coming out of it because they've met the healer. They've met the one who calls them out of it. And so here we see that there's there's the one coin of the gospel that has two sides, what we are saved from and what we are saved for. What we are saved from, our sin, our sickness, our wicked ways. Jesus does forgive us. He heals us. Praise the Lord, but don't stop there. Many of us stop there. My sins are forgiven. That's one side of the coin. Don't stop there, short of the feast, what you're saved for. We're saved for communion with him. He doesn't forgive and then leave, notice. He forgives and then says, follow me. Right? He heals us, but he heals us so that we can know the physician, spend time with the one who heals us. Don't stop short of the feast. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to know you. He wants you to enter into relationship with him. He has known you from eternity past. He wants you also to know him. He wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants you to dwell in his home and gaze upon his beauty. He wants your heart to be filled with the fullness of joy that is only in him. Don't misunderstand this passage. Jesus is coming to call sinners to transformation through communion with him. Craig Blomberg, it's a weird last name, but he's a, he's a professor in, at Denver Seminary, he wrote a book uh, called Contagious Holiness, very academic. It's great, but you won't enjoy reading it. Uh, but what he does is he looks at every passage where Jesus shares a meal with sinners and with tax collectors, whether it's Zacchaeus or this scene here. And what he does is he traces all of these out and he says, every single time something incredible happens. Instead of Jesus getting sick, 
Instead of Jesus becoming unclean by the sinners, the reverse happened. The sick get healed. What is contagious in their interaction is not their sin, it's his holiness. And that is exactly what we're seeing here. Communion with Jesus, communion with your Savior, doesn't make him sinful. Rather, it transforms us to be more like him. The sick are healed. Sinners become saints. Jesus turns this tax collector, Matthew, into an apostle. He turns murderous Saul into missionary Paul. An encounter with Jesus, communion with Jesus, is transformative. There's the two sides of the gospel. Though we are a sinner, we should have the fruit of communion with him. Jesus says in John 15, those who abide in me, those who commune with me, will bear much fruit But even in that, we don't have grounds to boast, as if we were bad and now we're awesome. It's his fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Still boast that he is the one that actually transforms your heart. But you see that transformation. They're not staying in their sin. They're turning from their sin by communion with him. And notice, the change isn't coming from behavior modification, right? Just focusing on the fruit. I just want to be more patient. I'm just try as hard as I can to be more patient. The change is coming by focusing on him. Why do I say every single sermon, get your eyes up off of yourselves and set them on him because that's how you're transformed. That is how you are made more like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with eight unveiled faces, beholding, looking, gazing upon the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory To another. So you want your plan of sanctification? Here it is. Gaze at your lovely Savior. Spend time at the table with your sweet Savior, Jesus, and let Him transform you to be more like Him. Do you commune with Him? Is his fruit being born out of your life? Have you stayed at, I'm a sinner? Are you at the Eeyore stage? And you haven't seen that other side of the gospel of, I'm saved by a gracious Savior who, by his grace, is transforming me to look more like him. Notice, he doesn't want these sinners to just look more like the Pharisees who trust in themselves. He wants them to trust in him. Do you look more like him? Do you find yourself... Viewing others, notice there's two groups in this passage that see. The Pharisees walk by and they see and they scoff. Is that how you see? Do you generally view everyone else in the world as just kind of frustratingly not getting it? Do you find yourself saying, ugh, if they were just a little bit more like me, or if they could just think things through like me? or if they could just parent by, like me, or if they could just be submissive like me, or if they could just finally get it together like me, maybe our world wouldn't be so horrible. Is that what flows through your mind? Or do you see as Jesus sees, as he walks by as Matthew's tax booth and moves forward with compassion and mercy and grace? Do you see like he sees? When you see desperate sinners, do you go, oh, gosh, 
or do you move forward with the gospel? Do you invite sinners to your table and call them to a merciful Savior? And if not, again, the answer is not, man, you're right, I need to evangelize more. Let me just go grit my teeth and try to do it, looking at the fruit. If not, go gaze at him and let him transform your heart to be more like him. You are a sinner, but you're united to a gracious Savior. So we see Jesus calls sinners to a feast. The feast transforms us because it is with him, and he makes us look more like him. And then there's another thing we must see, otherwise we'll miss what the, the, the fellowship that God is drawing us into. We need to see the one who is actually calling us to this feast, okay? There's a tendency for us to just focus on what Jesus does. And that's fine, that's great. But oftentimes we stop short of seeing who he is. The scriptures are not just telling you, uh, showing you a bunch of things that God did and then moving on, it's showing you who God is, who is the God who does the work. That's actually exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage in Hosea 6. Go read the Bible and know God's heart. And this passage is gloriously displaying God's heart. When you're suffering, one of the things that's not going to help you is say, oh, here's God's hand in all this, because you won't know. It will be very difficult to see. The thing you need to fall back on is knowing, I don't know what he's doing, but I know he's good. I know his character. You need to know who he is. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor, said this, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And this passage beautifully displays the heart of Jesus. Look at this over again. Look at verse 9 again. First thing we see about who he is, he is the initiator. Again, Matthew's not looking for him. Matthew's going about his taxing, right? his thieving of people's money and putting it in his own pocket. And Jesus initiates. Jesus sees him, comes to him, and draws him to himself. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus' eyes have always been on him. Before God said, let there be light, Jesus' eyes have been on Matthew, but now he's come down and calls him. He's the initiator. When you don't think about God, his eyes are on you, and they've never left you. His mind is never on other things. It's fixed on you. He, right now, this second, is at the right hand of the Father praying for you interceding for you. You have never left his gaze. Banish the thought of a distant, unconcerned Savior. When you go to pray and God feels a million miles away, tell your feelings they're lying to you. His eyes are fixed on you. And look what happens when he sees. Does he turn in disgust like the Pharisees do? No, he draws near. Your sin does not repulse him. It draws him near to save you. Let that change your life when you're wallowing in shame, thinking Jesus has his arms crossed, saying, why can't you just get it together? Your sin does not repulse him like it does the Pharisees. It draws him near to save you, to bring you to his table. Jesus comes and displays his beautiful heart in this as he calls 
sinners. The one who was born in the feeding trough, the king of the universe who was born in a feeding trough, has now gone lower to the table with sinners. Don't you see who he is? The most common phrase that we get in the New Testament when Jesus looks at sinners isn't irritation, that they can't get it together. It's not rage at their sin. It's he saw them and he was moved by compassion. When he sees your helplessness, compassion fills his heart. When he sees your sin, mercy fills his heart. I'm letting you know this because you don't believe it. The main thing that the enemy will always attack is God's character. Go look at Genesis 3. It's exactly what he lies to Adam and Eve about. God is not good. God did not give you this good garden. He knows you'll just be like him if you eat. What's he doing? He's attacking God's character, and he attacks his character to you and use the scriptures to fight it. This is who your God is. He loves you. He's merciful. He's moved by compassion when he sees your weakness, and he's come down to draw you to his table. And there's one more question we have to ask as we think about these just incredible realities. How? How has he called us to the table? If it is true that he isn't just randomly unconcerned with sin and he is concerned with justice and holiness, how is he eating with sinners? If it's true that if Israel went into God's presence without a sacrifice, they would be killed on the spot because God is perfectly holy and Jesus hasn't somehow changed his mind about God's holiness, how does he call us to the table if we are riddled with sin, if we are by our very nature sick and have nothing but filthy rags to offer him, how does he call us to the table? Quite simply, by coming to us, taking our sin, putting it upon himself so that he might pay the penalty we deserve so that there's nothing left for us. Isaiah 53 Speaking of Jesus, prophesying about Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul has made an offering for guilt. His soul has made an offering for sin, your sin and my sin. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's how he calls us to the table. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We broke the law. The curses are hanging over our heads. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5:21 God made him who knew no sin 
The only one who wasn't a sinner, the only one in this story who isn't a sinner. Pharisees are sinners. The sinners are certainly sinners. Tax collectors are sinners. There's only one who knew no sin, and God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. John Newton again says, Oh, wonderful love to bleed and die, to bear the cross in shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy glorious name. He saves us from our sin by paying the penalty for our sin himself, and he saves us for glorious life in him. He saves us for the feast. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ has also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not just so that he could forgive our sins and say, don't worry, there's not going to be punishment, and leave. He saved us so that he might bring us to God, and he might bring us to the feast. 2 Corinthians 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, sitting on his heavenly throne, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Last one, John 1, 3, 1 John 1, 3. Indeed, our fellowship, our feast, our table is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We get a taste of it now. We have the seal of the Spirit in us as a guarantee of what is to come where we will one day see his face when we're brought to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. We're brought to the eternal table and we will be with him face to face. Hear his call on your life to the feast. See who you are. See who he is. See that he's calling you. Be transformed by communing with him and live in the joy that is only found at his table. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We're just in awe. We are baffled that you would save sinners such as us, that you who is in charge of the universe would look at us, what is man that you are mindful of him, and what is the sinner that you would give your son for him, and yet you did. And so I pray that you would keep us constantly in this place of awe where we can do nothing like Paul but worship at your glorious patience with us. And I pray that you would transform us, that the world would see that we are your disciples by the fruit of your spirit, by our love for one another, that there would be a genuine hatred of sin that only gets more and more and more strong because we know it keeps us from the table with you. And I pray now as we actually go to the table as a family, you, you more cement that into our hearts, that we have been brought, that the God who said, let there be light, the God who said, I am making all things new, has brought us to his family as adopted sons and daughters with no wrath because it was all poured out on your son, only joy and blessing that is available to us in your son. We praise you for him and pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to this incredible reality. We pray in your son's glorious name. Amen.